0: Hello and welcome to another episode, live episode, of the Daily Remedy Podcast with the famous Miss Barbara Ingle, nine-time author, legislator, speechwriter, and founder and editor of iPain Living. And with that, I'd like to welcome Miss Ingle.
1: Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here and, and get to talk to you and have this conversation. I'm excited for this.
0: Of course. Let's start by understanding your story and how your journey of pain led you to become the advocate that you are today.
1: I was living my life to the fullest. I was the head cheer and dance coach at Washington State University and taking life for granted. I was a business owner and was doing all the things I ever dreamed of. I worked hard for them, but I also was playing hard and, and taking life for granted. And one day I was in a minor car accident and everything changed in eight seconds. And when I say everything, I mean my marriage fell apart, My living situation. I lost my house. I lost my ability to drive. I lost my ability to work. I lost my company. Uh, I went from flying in private jets to basically being homeless and not knowing where I was going to go, what I was going to do next. had to rebuild.
0: It's tough, and your story is like so many patients where you not only have medical issues now thrusted upon you, but there's a social and economic element to you. Mm -hmm. How did that affect the progression of your pain, the symptoms you felt. Tell us how you mixed all of that together.
1: I didn't realize that it was affecting me in all these other areas. All I knew was I was injured, I was hurt, and I wanted to be out of pain. And I would go in emotional to doctor appointments. I would, I would go in crying and saying, help me, help me, I'm in pain. Where is it? Everywhere. I'm on fire. Well, I didn't get to, to the I'm on fire until three years later. And when I said that, it was one of the clues to the doctors that were trying to help me that, okay, that's neuropathic. Yeah. And But until then, I didn't have the right words. And mentally, I was not prepared for what I was going through. And all I saw in my life was everything getting stripped away. Who I am was stripped away. And I actually started going to counseling and trying to figure out the social psycho aspects of what I was going through and piece that back together, not even realizing that it was related to having everything in my life stripped away almost immediately.
0: That's interesting because you talk about these patient encounters as almost learning experiences for yourself as well. Yes. You said learn the right words, understand the right words, Mm -hmm. almost as though you were understanding your own condition as you were meeting with your physicians. Talk a little bit about how that process of learning took place both in a good way and bad way as you're talking to these physicians.
1: Well, the bad way was that I would go in and and just rely on the physician to look at me and understand what I was going through when I wasn't communicating. It all comes down to communication. And so going in and saying the wrong things, it it literally delayed my care, delayed my diagnosis. it It increased my medical bills because I would just do what that doctor's specialty was to try to see if it would help. And they didn't have any direct targeted information as to what I was actually living through and going through and and trying to do on a daily basis. All they knew was I was an emotional lady coming and sitting in front of them crying, saying, fix me, fix me. And it took 42 medical providers to get the wrong diagnoses and the wrong treatments. One told me I was going to die if I didn't have my rib taken out immediately. So I rushed into surgery. I had five lung collapses as a result of that surgery. And just one thing after the next went wrong. That 43rd doctor before he even saw me did it right. He asked for all my medical records. He went through them before he even physically saw me sitting in the room as a patient. And He came in and he did his evaluation and said, I think I know what's going on, but this is the plan to figure it out. We need to do this testing and figure out what is actually going on, not just what I think is going on. And he was the first provider that looked at the whole of me instead of just my lungs or just my heart or just the the pain. He actually looked at all the symptoms combined and then said, let's make a plan to move forward together.
0: Was that just a uniquely good physician or was there something in how you communicated with him or her as well
1: i by that point that he was that doctor that i said burning fire pain Mm -hmm. and until that point i had never described my pain i had said i have pain but no providers were asking me is it dull is it sharp is it cutting is it searing is it does it feel like you're getting electrocuted no doctor had given me adjectives And I didn't know that it was important to share my adjectives in in what I was actually feeling and going through. And when I did that, that's when I was able to have a good conversation. He also looked at the whole me based on what all these other doctors tried to do and then said, I believe you have this rare disease and let's get you tested for it.
0: That's interesting. So for the listening audience who may be going through something similar but have not yet Understood or fully realized how to speak or communicate properly. Do you have any? Bits of advice or I guess tidbits if you will that could help them better communicate.
1: Yes Keep a journal of what you're doing. I was keeping a journal But I never shared it with any other provider until that yeah. 43rd provider And I was keeping track of in the, when I woke up during the day and then when I was going to bed how I felt And then I also was writing down what activities I tried to do that day and if I was able to do them, if I wasn't, if it made the pain increase, if it made it better. And, you know, anything from putting ice on, which I now know is really not good for my condition, or putting heat on. I figured out on my own, heat made me feel better. Things like uh, I switched out my plates and glasses to paper plates and plastic solo cups. Okay. Just so that they were lighter when I dropped them, they didn't break. I didn't. uh, I still spilled the food, but I didn't have to then worry about cleaning up glass or, or other things that I was having trouble holding on to. So I was I was able to find those things on my own, but it was all in my journal and sharing that journal entries with my provider, he could see this long three years of history as to what was going on.
0: That's great advice and particularly talking about changing the silverware, Mm -hmm. making certain behavioral changes, when you present that information to your physician, is it ever Taken the wrong way, as if you're trying to one up them, or in your experience, you feel like physicians would be receptive to that type of information.
1: The ones that are going to continue to treat me are going to be receptive to that <laughs> yeah, information. No, sure. But I now know you can you can walk away from a provider if if you're not being heard or you don't have the right adjectives or you don't get off on the on the right on the right note. I knew that I wasn't faking, and I knew I wouldn't give up my life.
0: Yeah,
1: and I needed help, so I was going to go and get the help that I needed. A lot of providers wanted to throw medication at me, and I would say, well, I want other options. What else is out there? Um, other other providers would say, no, you need this invasive surgery. You need to have your rib taken out or you're going to die, like that dire of a situation which turned out I didn't need my rib out, but this doctor ended up affecting my lungs for the rest of my life mm-hmm. during that procedure of taking my rib out and the mistakes that he made. So it. It really, it, it if you were going to treat me now, I kind of have a, put together a team and I suggest that patients do that. You have your primary care doctor, my primary care doctor, which that's your specialty. He is my co-leader of my team. Yeah, We do everything together. If one of my other specialists or providers wants to give me a medication or have me do a physical therapy exercise, he has to approve it. Yeah. And he, he's the gatekeeper for all of them. And they, the, one, the patients that they have in common, like me, that are seeing this team of doctors, they meet about us and have conversations and say, this is coming down the pipeline. I think it could help Barbie or Susie or Jeffrey or whoever it is. And they say, what's going on? But they also rely on me now that I have a team. I didn't, again, this is something I felt like I needed to set up and ask my providers. Will you be my pain management specialist? Will you be my lung specialist? Will you be my cardiac specialist? And talk within my team.
0: Yeah.
1: And this is my main doctor, my primary care doctor. Everything goes through him. And he has been my doctor since 2005. And he even went to concierge medicine. And I went and Mm -hmm. interviewed other providers, other practitioners that, that are general practitioners. And they said, what he does for you, we wouldn't do.
0: Yeah.
1: And I said, well then, you're not my doctor. And they said, well, he he has a fee of $2,000 a year outside of insurance. And my family has decided this is important enough to have this team of treatment providers that do communicate. Communication is key. It's worth it for me to to pay that additional money every year.
0: how how do you navigate that balance? So you have a team, Mm -hmm. there's a point Primary and then you have a team of physicians. How do you balance how much to listen? Versus how much to rely on your own experience your own journaling to help guide or at least contribute to the clinical decision-making
1: I Listen to everything that they say and sometimes I even record the the session if like my husband or caregiver can't come with me I'll record it so that I can play it back and really evaluate. Okay. This is what they were saying I, I try not to take anything that's said personally, although I've had mean things said to me by doctors, like you're trying to get away with something, and I'm literally saying, no, I just want help. That's not my type of provider. I don't want to stay with that type of provider. I want to stay with doctors that will work in a team environment, even if their practices are completely independent and separate from each other.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I want to work in a team environment. And it could come from me being an athlete, But that's when I get the best care, when all of us on the team are communicating. And when I have something that's new that comes up, and I have to have a new provider or specialist, I go, I get their information, and I balance it against the ones that have been with me for years
0: and where my
1: trust is. But I also have done my own research, and I also have lived this life for over 20 years now where I have to be the chief of staff of my medical team. Yeah. And, and my input counts, but I have to balance it with what the providers who went to medical school are saying, as well as reach out to researchers and, and find out what their studies are, are doing and, oh, how long was your study? Did you only study patients that had this condition for six months or two years or five years or 20 years? Is, how long have you, have you been following these patients to know that this is a viable option for this type of patient? I do a lot of it online because I don't really drive much.
0: How do you find these resources? Do you go online? Do you reference individuals? How do you find out which sources to utilize?
1: I research everywhere that I can, It um, <laughs> so I don't leave the house much. So I have to do a lot of it online, um, but I also attend conferences. I find out what resources are available first in my own community and then I spread out. I look to see if there's patients that are saying, Dr. A is the best doctor for this condition. What is Dr. A doing that's different from what my team of providers is doing? Can I talk to my provider and say, hey, uh, Dr. A is one of the top in the country. He's or she is doing this. Are you willing or open to learning about it? Not necessarily doing it, but learning about it. And um, recently I had an issue with my porticath, and I was having a conversation with my general practitioner and, and said, You know, I've, I've talked to many different providers, they all have different opinions. Are you willing to go and study and learn about porticath so that you can better guide me in do I get it replaced now? Do I wait? Do you know what's the appropriate thing to do in this situation? And he said yes, and he actually reached out to other providers that are outside of our team and asked questions, so I used him as a resource. Um, I've used my pharmacist as a resource where I was having complications from medications. Now I have a pharmacogenomics test result, so I use that, but at this time there wasn't a such thing as pharmacogenomics. And I went to her and I gave her a list of all of my medications and said, can you tell me where these process in the body? And I used that pharmacist as a, as a guide to help me figure out why my kidney or why my liver was being overworked and what medications could I use or switch out or talk to my provider about that would be helpful for me to, so that I'm not having complications like I was having.
0: A lot of that requires active engagement with physicians. Yes. A lot of patients struggle to have those effective conversations. Sure, there may be one or two physicians patients trust, but there's always a new provider, always a new pharmacist, always a new physician. Those moments when you encounter somebody new, how does that- I have a one encounter- pager.
1: I, I call it a one pager. On that one pager, I at the top, I list all the medications I'm taking, the dose, if it's as needed or every day or whatever that is. I, I have all that information, and I have a list of all the medications I've had complications with mm. and what those complications were. Then I have the next section is questions that I think of in between appointments or if it's a new provider, questions that I have for this particular provider for this whatever is going on. And then I have a list of ongoing issues. And then I have a list I've had over 50 surgical procedures. So I have a list of my surgical procedures in very small, type print um, in columns at the bottom of the page, of the one page. I try to keep it to one page because no doctor has time to read. My medical records are five feet tall, my mm-hmm. height. So they can't read that. They need to know what's going on now. What is your current recent issues? What are your questions for me? But they always ask, what are your past procedures? So I, on their forms, I say, see attached. Mm-hmm. So it gives me more time. It gives them more time. Yeah. And it's on that piece of paper. My primary care doctor, if I'm going to the emergency room for, for something that comes up accidentally or emergency, and I can't get in to see him, I call him, and he will actually use my one-pager when he contacts the hospital to say my patient's on her way in, yeah. these are the things that she needs. She has a portacath. Don't try to fight around why she has a portacath. If she needs her portacath access, access her portacath. It's not. To, it's not to be a fight. And he sets the hospital up to let them know I'm on my way in. So I don't. I don't. Um, I call nine one one if I need it or or am getting a ride to the hospital. But he's my next call.
0: Wow, that's great advice. And in many ways all chronic pain patients should have their own one pager. Yes,
1: absolutely.
0: And I think that it would give a lot of credibility to (laughs) chronic pain patients if they're able to have that one pager that they can keep with them
1: and you just update it in between appointments. And, and at the bottom of the one-pager, I will put the doctor's names of who I gave it to. So I keep track. And I know, I never save it over top of itself. I always save it with the new date of whenever I've updated it, it has the new date and what providers have that information.
0: Yeah, that's, that's great. And I think that uh, we should potentially create one that we can disseminate to the chronic pain community because I think that would be a valuable resource. Absolutely. Now let's transition to your work as an advocate, Mm -hmm. because uh, as a chronic pain patient, I mean, uh, absolute gold standard. I mean, as an advocate, equally, if not more impressive with everything that you've done. uh, That list of accolades are just too long to go (laughs) through piece by piece. But uh, just before we even go into the specifics on your advocacy, talk a little bit about what drives you to be so prolific in your advocacy.
1: A few things, one, I believe in God and I believe that my purpose on earth is to help humanity through the challenges of of medical care and God has given me patience through this process and he has given me a voice and that is the main driver of what I do. I do it through his light. The second thing is, I was born a cheerleader. so. Some people call me advocate, but I would say I'm a cheerleader and I'm cheering people to and through pain and the challenges that they face and the challenges that I've had to face. And just like I have a team of doctors, I see that everybody in the chronic pain community, whether I like you or not or whether we have the same disease or not, none of that matters. We all deserve access to proper and timely care. So as a cheerleader, and instead of physical, now I'm a mental cheerleader. That's what drives me. When your team is losing 50 to 0, my dad asked me this question once How are you guys down on the field, or girls, so he said guys, but <laughs> um, down on the field uh, doing these cheers and dancing and trying to pump the crowd up to keep on cheering when you're losing 50 to 0? And that's our job, and we train as cheerleaders to cheer even when you're losing. And when I got sick, I went from being a physical cheerleader to a mental cheerleader and said, now the game isn't the football team or the basketball team or the golf team that we're cheering for. Now the team is the chronic pain community. Mm -hmm. How do we get what we need so that we can win in this life on this earth? And with whatever challenges that we're facing, and that is my goal. And until I die, the game's not over. No, my game will continue, and I hope to live to be a hundred. That's my goal. I just turned fifty, so I Half got period. fifty more years. Yeah. Yes, to, to to do this. But I believe that I was born a cheerleader, and I will be a cheerleader for the rest of my life.
0: And that's awesome. I really appreciate that optimism. However, for many in the pain community that optimism is often difficult to find. Mm-hmm. In your moments where it's difficult, where you're struggling to find that optimism, how do you capture that?
1: A psychiatrist taught me this. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, he, I, at the point that I was lowest in my life, I was curled up in a ball in his office, and um, I said I'm nothing, I lost everything, I suck. I, I literally thought I, had lost my whole life because what I did was connected to who I am. And he gave me a homework assignment and he said I want you to go home and write down I am at the top of a piece of paper and list all the positive things in your life. All the things that you are that other people may not necessarily know or see or have anything to do with. List your I am's. And a few days later I had a week to do this project. And about three days in, he called and said, hey, you know, your appointment's coming up in four days. How's your list coming? And I said, I have nothing on my list because I suck. I am, I am the worst human being on earth. I can't do anything I'm supposed to do. I literally, my self-esteem was below zero. I just thought I was going to die. And he said, well, let's start with, you go to church, you believe in God, you're spiritual. And he gave me my first I am, I am spiritual and I wrote that down and I realized nobody can take that away from me, it's innate, it is in me and I started writing down my list and by the time I got to his office, four days after that, I had 50 things on my list. By the time I left his office an hour later, I had 75 I am's on his list, on my list. And now I have over 150 I am's on my list That's because awesome. I've kept that list going for 20 years. And when I have those moments of doubt, those moments where my confidence is low, those moments where other people try to tell me who I am or put guilt on me or take something away from me, I go back to my I am list and I'm like, dang, I'm all these things. Yeah. And nobody can take them away from me because they are in me, they are about me. There can be times where I'm I'm happy and I'm and content at the same time. And you're like, how can you be these two things at the same time? And I might just have a little more happiness or a little more, I'm okay, I'm alive. I can still breathe even if I can't get out of bed. So having my I am's to me is everything and that helps me stay positive. The other thing is I physically, if I feel stress, guilt, negativity on me, I take my hand and I grab it and I throw it away from my body. Anxiety gone and it's you're telling your brain something and your brain's listening so when you say I suck I I can't do this I'm nothing your brain remembers that and that's what you're producing in your life even if you don't feel like I am happy there's been times when you've been happy that's in you
0: Yeah.
1: keep saying those things to yourself keep repeating your I am's to yourself and just the other day i was I was talking to a patient, and I taught her this i am uh, project i don't know I, what to call it experiment exercise, and she literally was like, "I am generous because she was giving too much of herself to other people and not yeah. taking care of herself and and i and I said, "Yes, good, that's your first i am It took me three days to get to the point to have one thing written on my piece of paper." You feel like you're depressed and you're sad and and everything in the world is taken away from you, but you are still here on earth until the day you do die, which might be your choosing, it might be someone else's choosing, you still have to play the game of life. You're still here, you're still active, and your I am's are there. Focus on your positives, and that helps you through it. And even if you don't believe it in this moment, there will come a day when it's, easily remembered and easily brought to the forefront of your mind and until then you need to talk to your subconscious and help it remain positive
0: that's great advice and that's something can be applied in all facets of life for all people all humans yeah yeah no that's really well said let's transition to specific advocacy efforts that you've either led or contributed to obviously (laughs) the, the books, nine time author, Mm -hmm. the legislation in the Arizona State Assembly. Mm -hmm. If you had to pick the top three efforts that you feel you're most proud of, what would you have to say?
1: Number one in 2010 I was selected to go and speak at the Department of Defense and in front of General Scott and um, uh, there was uh, three people on the panel, a doctor, another patient who was also military, and myself, who is a daughter of, of a military uh, mother and father, but I am a civilian, and so I outranked everybody in the room. <laughs> so they, and they kept referring back to me because they couldn't tell the general what they wanted to say because of their rank in the military, so they would say, I'm going to refer to Barbie, and I got to be able to be a voice and speak as a civilian. And I was able to get ketamine infusions covered by the VA through the Department of Defense and bring that to the table and and help that get get established.
0: Wow.
1: So I'm very proud of that. Wow. So, number two, um, this past year uh, in 2022, I wrote two legislative bills uh, 1469, which makes law enforcement in Arizona have to have a um, warrant mm-hmm. to look at the PDMP, and then if they, if they look at the PDMP and they think something's wrong, they can't just come and arrest the providers. They have to take it to the Arizona Medical Board over if it's a nurse practitioner, the nurse practitioner board, or a medical doctor. And, and the medical board that has medical providers looking at the case decides if, it, after doing their investigation and talking to the person involved and the people around them, then they, if they think something criminal happened, they can refer it back to the police, otherwise they handle it or they drop it. Yeah. And the police can't come in and raid you, the DEA can't come in and raid you and just take away your license, um, which has happened to doctors here in Arizona. Um, this is not just beneficial for providers, but I had providers in mind when I was working on this bill. But it also helps patients. Um, last year there was a case where a, a gentleman had a medical marijuana license he had not. Um, he did not have marijuana in his system, but he admitted he was pulled over in a. Um, they were stopping all vehicles, and he got pulled over, and he gave up the fact that he uh, had a medical marijuana card, and they arrested him, and charged him with DWI, and he had to go to jail, and it affected his life, and it finally went to jury to a jury, and the jury found him guilty. No matter if he had a medical provider that that. Um, helped him, got him a proper license. This man thought he was doing all the right things and his whole life was affected because he had this medical condition where he decided not to use an opiate but to use a, a different substance legally and, and was, was torn apart for it. So this will help people that are pulled over where the, the, the cop can't just go put your name in the database, the yeah. PDMP, and pull it up. So patients will also be protected under this as well.
0: Yeah, I think that's important to know because when you protect the providers, you're protecting the patient-physician relationship.
1: Yes, and that is very important to getting uh, continued care with a chronic condition, especially if it's a rare disease. You have to have that patient-physician partnership and trust and you have to be able to get through the situation to get the person the care that they need, whether they have addiction, chronic pain, a rare disease, uh, asthma, any any condition. You have to have, even if it's just you and your primary care doctor, you have to have that team partnership mentality where you can trust each other.
0: That's well said. Now you mentioned two different advocacies. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we get to the third one, I just want to ask about the time horizon yes. the first one was in 2010 yes the second one was two years ago that almost a decade apart
1: mm mm-hmm. oh, I've done so much in between yeah, I, you I, said gosh. pick your top three so no, definitely
0: okay. the reason why I ask about that is mm-hmm. because a lot has changed in that decade
1: oh my gosh the, and, the whole scene of what yeah. was allowed in 2010 yeah. 20 2005 2010 like it all has has changed uh, we saw major changes in 2016, which I predicted in 2015 because I was uh, trying to to talk to the CDC and as they, I was in there trying to say this is going to hurt patients. This yeah. is going, um, and 2018 Arizona, where I live, specifically passed a, a, actual laws that that so instead of just guidelines, these laws were then used against providers. Wow. So now I'm in trying to work on legislation to fix those laws and we can't go in and just say, this is wrong, let's fix it. We have to keep the parts that are good in the, in the laws mm-hmm. and fix the parts that are stopping patients and providers from having the relationship that should be sacred and should be between the patient and the physician with their private health information. We have all these HIPAA laws that get violated all the time through, through our court system, through The pharmacist talking too loud. There's so many ways that is out in the public that shouldn't happen. Um, The DEA coming in and and reading our records, they should not be able to come in and read our records like that. So there's so many ways that it's being violated, and we're working on those ways. And, um, And I have come up with something that's bipartisan, bicameral. So it doesn't matter if you're independent, Republican, Democrat, I literally don't care. I want to get what's best for the patient and the provider to be what is brought forth and fixed. And so that's where I'm coming from, to to fix it. Because like you said, from 2010 to to, to today, it's a completely different environment.
0: And so what would be the third?
1: The third is one of the um, senators, uh, she's no longer a senator, but Senator Bardo um, from Arizona asked me to write her floor speech for her when <laughs> <laughs> When she went to to explain why the bills were so important and why should they should be passed and And I was able to, to write her floor speech and I got introduced in front of the whole Senate That's
0: awesome.
1: And she also bought uh, I one of my books from wheels to heels. She bought a copy for every single legislature, legislator in our state and asked them to read it with a personal note and said this is not a political uh, issue. This is how we can better help our constituents and um, those many of the um, senators and House of Representatives have either called me themselves, written me emails or and or have passed on my book to other people, their staff or other patients that are in their communities for them to read. So that's been disseminated even further.
0: That's awesome. Yeah.
1: So, so that was my number three. But I've done so much more. I Not just in Arizona. I've worked in, in almost all 50 states as well as um, Canada, Australia, and Mexico.
0: So what was that like?
1: interesting every and uganda Uganda. every every country has its own rules and laws and when i was uh, helping in uganda they actually sent me patients medical records to like prove to me what they were doing and i was like please do not send me anybody's medical records i do not (laughs) i do not need to see them i don't want to see them um to to us in america that is like something that's supposed to be private yeah and and so i i didn't feel right having them but they wanted to prove to me because i was actually working with people in the government of uganda Mm -hmm. And and so that was pretty special and, and unique, but every, every country has a different way of doing it and what medications they allow patients to have access to and how they distribute them and how it's covered and paid for and all the aspects that are involved. So it's it's been quite an experience and journey.
0: That's awesome. So what's next for you?
1: Well, I am, <laughs> I am the editor of iPain Living Magazine, as you said, and then I was the uh, president of International Pain Foundation for um, 10 years from 2012 to 2022, and I'm now the immediate past president. Uh, and so I'm helping the new board of directors get situated and understand the landscape of the pain community and decide on what avenue and way they want to go. And I have three books that I uh, want to finish, three more books (laughs) that I want to finish. And I was going to stop at 10, but I just have too many ideas and too many things that need to be shared. And it's so much easier to put it in a book. Like I started reading your book. I love your book. Oh, thank you. Um, It's not out to the public yet, but um, chapter six is my favorite. So, um, (laughs) (laughs) um, the burden of pain and, um, and I, I just I think that sharing in books and seeing what a story and journey is is so helpful to other patients and gives them tools, tips, and resources and understanding of the situation that we're in. And you have gone through quite a situation yourself. So uh, I'm so glad that you put your story into a book and I'm going to be excited to share that with my network.
0: Well, thank you.
1: And um, I'm going to be working on three more books, another children's book, a book about my life before chronic pain, and then a follow-up to um, what I'm dealing with since my last book, From Wheels to Heels.
0: Yeah, wow. So for those listening who'd love to get a hold of you, what's the best way they can get contact you?
1: They can contact me through my personal website, barbieingle.com. They can contact International Pain Foundation through internationalpain.org. And my email is barbie, with a Y, barbieingle, mm-hmm. sorry, barbie at barbieingle.com.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much for your time. (laughs) Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Likewise.